All right, what is a decolonial educator? Let's find out. We're going to talk to Constanza Eliana Chinea. Uh, she is the co-host and producer of the Stranger Fruit show and podcast. Uh, she does her own thing at Boricua with strong opinions. She's also the founder of the Anti-Oppression Social Club and Academy. A lot to uh, talk about there. Welcome. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Ah, no problem. So actually, there's a bunch of things I got to get educated on. Okay, so let's start with what <laughs> I tease right there. Help me understand what a decolonial educator is. Yeah, so basically, I focus on decolonial theory and education. So I basically just have a strong decolonial focus. Uh, it is also rooted in anti-oppression and anti-racism. And essentially, I try to kind of dismantle a lot of colonial notions that people might have um, that have come from either history being whitewashed or you know anti internalized anti-blackness in people of color um, in particular, like brown and indigenous folks, and also just um, you know having a strong focus on decolonizing the way in which we move about the world. Okay, so let's see if uh, this is one example and then you give me other examples. So for example, today we're actually uh, taping this, uh, people will see the next day, but we're taping it on Columbus Day, right? So I was decolonial yeah. uh, educated uh, in that <laughs> when I was a kid, uh, I was taught in school in America that Christopher Columbus was a hero and he was awesome and he found America. Otherwise, America was just going to float away and we were never going to find it and nobody else had ever found it, right? <laughs> and then uh, as yeah. a grown up, uh, I put childish things aside. I read what Columbus actually did. Oh my God, it was horrific. It was terrible. So, is that what we're yeah. talking about here? Understanding what actually happened in history? Yeah, and it also goes beyond understanding what happened in history. So that's a really great start. That's kind of the 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 most basic form of decolonial education is having a proper understanding of how history actually went down. And in in a lot of ways, it's kind of decentering whiteness because a lot of our history is really Western and European centered, and we know that. Uh, white supremacy is kind of a part of that. And so um, that's the like very basic level of decolonizing history. But history isn't the only thing that needs to be decolonized because of colonization kind of continuing on in modern day. There's so many things that happened as a repercussion of European colonization across the world. I believe that Europe colonized about 90% of the world. And that has been internalized by both people of color, by white folks, by literally everybody. And so a lot of those repercussions really show up by way through capitalism. For instance, the skin whitening industry is worth billions and billions and billions of dollars. And all of that stems from European colonization, wanting to whiten society. And so a lot of people of color have really internalized that across the world. And now we have a billion dollar industry selling whitening products, whitening creams. Um, doctors make an entire business out of whitening um, procedures. And those are the types of things that have happened since 1492. And in a lot of ways, most people don't realize that a lot of the things that we have internalized come 
and stem from that original colonization. And so we think of colonization as a physical thing that happens to us, but we don't necessarily think of it in uh, as a way of a mindset. And that's what you know decolonial decolonial education um, tries to dismantle. Okay, let me try. That makes perfect sense. Let me try another example that's more personal. Yeah. Right. So. I talk about this in my book that is going to come out at some point in life. Uh, anyway, uh, it's my grandfather's name was Abdul Qadir Mullah Habibolu. And, uh, and, and if I stayed in my parents' hometown in southeastern Turkey, they would probably call me Abdul Qadir Mullah Habibolu or Mullah for short. Um, and mm-hmm. I remember thinking when I was a kid growing up in America, oh, how funny is that? How crazy is that? Uh, and how mm-hmm. I look, I would only tell people as kind of like a joke. But like I would never, and I my family changed their name in 1923, and how grateful I was right. that they changed their name, right? And is, yes, that's the colonial mindset, right? A hundred percent. I think a lot of Latinos can actually, you know, definitely resonate with that. If I told you my full name, you would also be like, "Whoa," because <laughs> you, you, we are so used to listening to Western-centric names like, you know, Ashley and John and all of these Western, you know, white names. And so when we hear like cultural names or you know um, names from across the world, um, that internalized notion of "Oh, that's weird," that's colonization and that's what we want to decolonize. So when I talk a lot about my story on different platforms and on my own platform, I really talk about it through that lens. Like something that feels very familiar for most people of color that are, you know, cross-cultural is that sense of something is wrong with me because I don't sound or look western or white. And names have a lot to do with that, right? My full name is Constanza Eliana Chinea Mercado Adorno Rivera. <laughs> but I, I, when I went to school, none of the teachers were able to pronounce that because they were all white and American. And so there was the sense that I personally had that I had to not only change aspects of my name. So I started by going, I started going by Eliana which is a little bit easier for people to pronounce, although most of the time they butcher that too. But that was that sense that that internalized notion that I had that I need to fit in. And the way the best way that I can fit in is to westernize myself. And that's a colonial aspect. Yeah. So the the issue isn't that the teacher can't pronounce Jenk because it's written with a C. I mean, there's no way in the world yeah. that he or she would know that, right? Uh, the issue right. is when you internalize it as you being the other. Right, and right, and of course, if they take action to label you the other, other than not being able to pronounce right. your name, right? Yeah, I think if we if we really had a society and a culture, particularly in the West, if if we had a society and a culture that really affirmed these differences, well, we call them differences, but we know that they're not really differences. Um, but if we really affirmed not just kids, but you know, just people who have a different culture, a different way of being, a different way of thinking, different types of food, different types of names, rather than try to scoff at it or try to, um, you know, say, oh, I can't pronounce that. So I'm just going to, you know, give you a nickname, which happened to me a lot growing up. Um, if we stopped doing that and we really affirmed people and we really just took the extra, you know, 10 seconds to learn how to pronounce somebody's name 
or the extra 10 seconds to learn, you know, how to actually um, affirm what that means to that person, we would start decolonizing a lot faster and a lot quicker. But instead, we have a culture that, um, you know, (laughs) <laughs> believes in the Trump era and believes that you know people who are othered um, deserve to be ostracized and and that they deserve to be segregated from everybody else, um, and and that's a culture that really needs to be dismantled. Yeah, look, I've got a thousand stories for everything you're saying. Uh, one of my nicknames in, <laughs> in, in elementary school was Chunky Hunky. So how's that for uh, Westernizing Jenk Uger? Um, okay, yeah. so yeah. and and I remember uh, I don't know when it occurred to me, probably as late as college, where I was like, "Wait a minute, why do we never study China in uh, world history, like ever? Like mm-hmm. it's pretty gigantic. It's a giant mm-hmm. part of world history, and never, not once, did we discuss Asia at all. So that was just amazing. Uh, and so, and and a lot of the, you're right. A lot of white folks, mostly right wing. But sometimes because people are used to things, they don't have necessarily bad intent. But a lot of folks think like, no, no, why would we study China? You want us to erase white culture or Western culture or Anglo. No, 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 we want you to teach it in the context of everything, right? So I don't think that's hard to understand. But I want to ask you one, just a thousand things. But you're the founder of the (laughs) Anti-Oppression Social Club and Academy. So what is that? That sounds super interesting. Yeah, so essentially the Anti-Oppression Social Club is an app that I created because I was attempting to really divest from traditional social media, which um, after 2020 and more in particular in 2021, um, there was a lot of censorship of activists, educators, decolonial educators, anti-racist educators. And I was just kind of sick of the censorship. I had just uh, had my live feature taken away. And I was kind of in, you know, Instagram purgatory for about a month. And so I created the Anti-Oppression Social Club as an app where people could go and um, just have a new way of engaging with each other and not have that level of censorship in particular. And then the academy just kind of stemmed from, you know, people wanting more education, very similar to a lot of the questions that you've asked. They really want to go a lot deeper into how do I do this on a daily basis, not just every once in a while when I see a post or um, you know try to do a little bit of Google search on Columbus Day, for instance, or Thanksgiving. But how do I actually dive a lot deeper into these things as it relates to myself, my business, my family, my relationships? And that's where the Anti Academy kind of um, stepped in. So, yeah. yeah, it's a lot. So that's interesting too. <laughs> what were you getting censored for? Because you know we always hear about the right wing saying talking about censorship, and they think you're running the social media platforms. <laughs> what do they say? I know you for? They, it's bananas. Yeah. So basically, I was talking a lot about anti-racism, uh, about you know critical race theory in particular. Um, I was talking a lot about white supremacy, and I think it's the white supremacy that Instagram doesn't like. They don't like that you're talking about white supremacy in particular. And if you use certain hashtags or if you're on live and you know sensitive white folks are um, reporting you, after so many reports, you end up getting censored. Um, I also think that you know it's it's also Latin Heritage Month still. And one of the conversations that our community has been having is around the word gringo. A lot of white people think that gringo is a, is a racial slur. 
and it's not. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so um, Instagram has, you know, either they were or they still are banning that hashtag of gringo, gringo go home, which is a Puerto Rican um, anthem. And that I, so I was getting reported a lot and I was getting shadow banned a lot. And for an activist, it's really frustrating because, you know, when you want to promote a protest or you want to promote anti oppression or anti racist theory, um, <clears throat> but they're not letting you talk about it, it, it can be really frustrating. Yeah. One of my favorite things is when white right wingers pretend to be offended at gringo or honky. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all that. Sure, you're offended, of course. It's been an awful history of the white people being oppressed with words like that. Um, anyways. There's so, there's so many laws against gringos in particular, right? Yeah. yeah. You could only take three quarters of the island, but you have to leave a quarter of the island to us. Those kind of right. oppressive laws, <laughs> right? Um, exactly. All right. Uh, Constanza, Aliana, Chinea. Uh, thank you for joining us. Everybody check around. Look, there's a thousand places I mentioned them all, but the main uh, show and podcast is The Stranger Fruit. Uh, make sure you're checking that out. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you. It's been an honor. Can progressives win in Republican districts, in rural Republican districts? How about one that's plus 16 for Republicans? The answer isn't, yeah, they might be able to. It's, yes, they already have. And not only that, can that same person then unseat the highest Republican state holder, state office holder in their in her whole state? Yes, that's the same person. I got great news for you. We're going to talk to her right now. Chloe Maxman is a currently a Maine state senator. She was also in the House. She was, in fact, the youngest to win a House and a Senate seat in the state of Maine. She is a progressive. There's a documentary about her called Rural Runners, starting a new organization called Dirt Road Organizing. Chloe, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. So, Chloe, we're going to want to know how you won, obviously. Okay. So, and I there's a couple of different components here. It's the this the fact that it's rural. There's the fact that it was in Republican districts, and then there's the issue of size. But let's start with how did you win in? such a deeply Republican area before we get into rural? You know, I, I grew up in, in a small town in rural Maine and I've always just loved my community so much. And as I grew older and became more involved with progressive politics, I really began to see the ways that so many of the folks in my community just, I didn't feel like their their voices were being heard and reflected. And what's more on the national scale, rural folks are tilting Republican and 2009, there was almost no partisan lean amongst rural voters. And as of 2019, rural folks were going Republican by 16 points. Such a huge shift in such a short amount of time. And I knew that was happening in my community. And I I really just wanted to dive in and try and better understand what was happening. So uh, you decide to run for the House state seat, right? How long did it take you to run? Because I know you did a lot of door knocking. I don't know if that was the reason why you won. Tell us why you think you won and how you did it and how long it took. I think, you know, my amazing campaign manager and co author, Canyon Woodward, and I, we, you know, we both worked on a bunch of campaigns before we both came from rural places. And when we took on our race in 2018, we really were just trying to. Think about it a little bit differently. There are 
so many folks doing this work in rural America, so many Democrats running for office and in conservative spaces where we're not the only ones doing this work. But you know, we we really just said, okay, we're gonna we're gonna do things differently. We're not gonna use resources from the party. We're gonna try and do this ourselves. And so we did a lot of things that were just, you know, tweaks, adjustments on, on how we usually campaign that made it feel so much more human. One of the biggest things that we did is we created our own canvassing universe, which is the, the group of people that the voters and the candidate go and talk to. And when I was talking to Republicans and independents in my district, every day I was talking to people who had never been contacted by a Democratic campaign or canvasser in their entire voting history. And you might think, oh, well, we're not talking to them because we don't have anything in common. But it was actually the exact opposite that we were finding so much common ground. And even if it was just agreeing to disagree, even if someone didn't vote for us, we were forging these connections that feel so deeply important in this moment in history when there's so much at stake and we can't allow the divisions to grow stronger. So do you know, you know, I'm sorry to put you on the spot here, but how many people live in in your district? It's a, again, it's not a U.S. congressional seat; it's a state seat. And and how many people live in the Senate seat that you later won? Good question. The the House districts in Maine are quite small. It's about nine thousand people when I was running in 2018. The Senate district is slightly more comparable to what we see in other states. It's about thirty seven thousand folks. I got you. And in the first campaign, how long did you campaign? In 2018, we canvassed all all year long from January to November. And then we were geared up to do the same thing in 2020 when we were running for state Senate. But then COVID hit, so we, we stopped canvassing and um, we did start canvassing again, but not until not until later in the summer when everyone was outside. We, we used our campaign to organize a a, a large spread mutual aid effort across the district, but you know I'm I'm young. I don't have any kids. My work is flexible, so I was able to campaign uh, throughout the year. And I know that's not accessible to everybody, but I think a lot of a lot of what Canyon and I did in our book is really just try and distill individual lessons and strategies and tactics that have worked for us in the hopes that maybe it will make others campaigning a little bit more accessible and easier. Right. And so when you were running for the Senate seat, now that's a larger number of folks, it's four times as big as your House seat. You're running against the highest ranking Republican in Maine, right? So it's a much bigger challenge and now you can't canvass. So what did you do to win that race? In in 2020, I had started canvassing and then when COVID hit, it was inappropriate to campaign let alone canvas but you know we had access to the voter database we have people's phone numbers and we use that to just reach out to every single senior in our district regardless of political affiliation and offer help we ended up having about 200 volunteers call over 13,500 folks and call them make sure we delivered prescriptions we helped connect people to food, we provided rides, whatever people needed. That's what that's what our campaign became about for a, a large chunk of time. It wasn't about getting me elected, but getting getting folks help. And then um, I did I did start canvassing again, but it was it was just me. I, I knocked 
um, over 13,300 doors in 2020 to win. So that's, and with two, what would otherwise be considered miraculous victories, right? But you're trying to point out they're not miraculous, that other people can do them as well, right? And so that's what's really interesting and important here. So when it comes to rural voters, how you're progressive, how are you able to connect with those rural voters who at this point are more heavily Republican? You know, I think so much of it is that I, I grew up in this community and I, you know, I grew up on my family's farm. I grew up on my dad's snowmobile. You know, I, I understand the community that I'm, I'm running in. And I think that's so important for anybody who's running for office. Um, you know, and I, growing up, I really don't remember politics being a hugely divisive issue. I mean, of, of course it came up, but the relationships that I was raised with were really focused on values. Are you a good person? Do you show up when someone is in need? And I, I really felt like when I started campaigning in my community that that was getting lost, that it was the politics of today and the these narratives that are created to divide us had become so dominant that it was very tricky just to have simple conversations with people. And so, you know, what we did was we just went and talked with folks who thought differently than than we did and we found our common ground and we found that space where we can respect each other and hear what each other are saying and in that space form a meaningful relationship that isn't just the transaction of a vote, but that's based on real dialogue and mutual respect. Hmm. So were there any issues where we found agreement? There are so many issues where I found agreement with folks and and of course there's issues where there's disagreement as well. You know, I think I have my, I, I'm, I have very strong progressive values and I, I strongly believe in social justice and racial justice and climate justice. And I, I don't bend on those in, in my conversations with folks. But, you know, for the most part, what I found, which I was really surprised by, is that folks on both sides of the aisle are just deeply frustrated with our political system. We feel left left behind, we feel let down, we feel unheard and unrepresented. And that was a ubiquitous message that that I heard. And so that was pretty that was pretty interesting to me because that's why I ran for office. And then I was talking to people who were voting for Trump and they were saying the exact same thing. So to me it was more about translating my values as a progressive person into this rural conservative context to see if we can make headway because the rural vote is gaining so much power in our, our political system. It's tilting state legislatures to the right. It's having an enormous influence over our presidency and state level races. And if we don't invest in rural America, we are going to lose on the key issues that matter to progressives. So that's almost certainly going to happen and continue to happen because the Democratic Party leadership doesn't care. Um, so uh, I'm going to ask you for the advice for them. Uh, you guys wrote a book called Dirt Road Revival, How to Rebuild Rural Politics and Why Our Future Depends on It. So what is your main advice to Democratic Party leadership in recapturing rural America? You know, the, the biggest thing that Kenya and I talk about is just as simple and cheesy as it sounds having an open heart and an open mind and really taking the time to drive down that mile long dirt road driveway and have a conversation with someone who might not be a Democrat. And to do that over and over again and to invest the time and the money and the resources and, and all of the volunteer capacity into these rural races so that we have durable political power 
cycle after cycle. I think that's one of the you know, one of the very special gifts that we had from the film Rural Runners is just like actual footage of what it looks like and and showing that it can be a kind, good experience and just how important it is to get folks involved with rural races that oftentimes receive less attention. We have rural candidates across the country who are fighting for progressive values and they need our support. Chloe, what would you say to uh Anybody, whether they're Democratic leaders, consultants, or just the regular person says, I hear you, but those are small districts, right? And so if we're trying to win congressional seats, but in rural areas, the congressional seats are 750,000 people. So you'll run out of time if you walk down a mile dirt road for every voter. So, and it's, I think that's a fair question. So what do you say to those folks? You know, it's, it's all. All connected. I think that one of the things that we talk about in the book and the film is that Democrats have had a really top-down strategy where we focus on, you know, statewide or very, very large races. And the way that we win those races is by focusing on the cities where there's all the Democrats are, and we just turn out as many people as we can. But then the consequence of that strategy, when you look at every other race that's happening, from planning board to school board to town council and state legislatures. They're all going the other way. So even though we may be winning some of these seats that are our large congressional seats or statewide seats, we're losing the local races. The Democrats lost almost a thousand state legislative seats during Obama's presidency. We have so much ground to make up. And what's so important these days, especially with what's happening with the Supreme Court, is that we do have strong Democratic majorities in state legislatures because that's how we protect our civil rights, our voting rights, our reproductive rights. And if we're only focusing on urban turnout when we have the resources to invest in the state, then we're leaving behind everyone else and jeopardizing so many of these critical races. I mean, in, in my community, it's happening right now and it's happening across the country where um, Gender queer is trying to be banned in one of the public schools in my district. And the folks who are going to be making that decision are on the school board. So there's just examples everywhere of how important it is to be investing in these local races where the impacts on our lives are so profound. Yep. Um, I wish that Democratic leadership would listen to you. I am not overly confident that they will. <laughs> um, so those same set of folks from 2009 to now have been obsessed with themselves and with money. So uh, so you've got a tough dirt road ahead of you, uh, but I'm rooting for you, we yeah. all are. Uh, the new organization is gonna be called Dirt Road Organizing. The book is called Dirt Road Revival. You're seeing a theme here. And uh, the movie is Rural Runners. Real quick, last thing, where can people watch Rural Runners? Rural Runners will be live on Vimeo, um, but you can most easily find it at dirtroadrevival.com. All right, Chloe Maxman, a couple of miraculous victories under her belt. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you.